movie makers give things away all the time, don't they? You think about it, if you just listen to the music in the back of most movies, some TV shows, you always know what's going to happen, don't you? There's this sense that there's this lightness and you know that something fun's going to happen, right? But then there's also this deeper kind of thing that takes place and we all know something bad is going to happen. We know that something as bad is going to happen. It would be interesting to take one of those guys that does musical scores and have him do it to the Word of God, wouldn't it? You know, I, I used to listen to the Bible on tape, and my favorite Bible on tape is always the British guy. Um, he's just a little more interesting to listen to than some guy from the Midwest. But occasionally they'll try to put a musical score to it, and it's just really odd. But if we were to take a look at the beginning of Scripture, the musical score is starting to change where we're at right now. It has been this delightful, frolicking, go-through-the-meadow kind of music, but the music is changing. Because we're entering chapter 3 of Genesis, and all of a sudden in chapter 3, it's... There's a change. There's a change that's taking place because all of a sudden we're going to find ourselves in a different place. I'd like to read the passage that we're going to do first today. And I want you to think about the music that you would put in the background of it. And then we'll take a look and we'll discuss the passage. If you have a Bible in front of you, I'm not going to have it on the screen this time. We're in Genesis chapter 3. But I'm going to start with the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Because this would have been the last crescendo before the baseline kind of takes over. It said this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Therefore a mother, man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, I, I think that as we think about Jordan and Aaron getting married today, and we think about our own marriages, we need to remember that the idea of marriage was a part of creation. It was a part of the very good of God. It, he created this. In fact, it talks about them being in the garden, and it describes that they were in the garden, and man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. The garden was a place of innocence, of joy, a, a place of connection, a place without damage, without walls. The garden was a great place. Remember, we learned that God placed them in the garden and He planted the garden for them. And He wanted the garden to be a place that was pleasing to the eye. You know, much like, I don't know if you noticed, but I took the time this week to grab pictures of the Adirondacks in the fall and make that the background of our worship music. Because what an incredible palette we have, right? And it hasn't been incredible. Some of us are disappointed in the rain because that's kind of like God washing the palate clean and getting us ready for winter, isn't it? But it was a beautiful place. But then the music changes. 
And we start chapter 3, and it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to to the woman, Did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit trees in, in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also took some and she also gave some to her husband was with her and he ate then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord god among the trees in the garden but the lord god called to man and said to him Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded that you not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles I will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. From out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments, skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, 
The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east gate, east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherub, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No, 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 no. Innocence was changed. It was gone. Remember as a parent those days when your kids were little and innocent and then all of a sudden they got a little bit older and there was that moment and you're like, innocence is gone. Innocence was gone. You see, that's what verse, the last verse of chapter 2 represents. It, res- it represents innocence. They were completely innocent and they were completely unashamed. I remember my kids being innocent. That diaper came off and the next thing I know, they were running all over the house and, and I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable, afraid they're going to hit the door and hit the neighborhood. But there was an innocence they had. They didn't realize what they were going through. They'd ask innocent questions. Remember that? There was an innocence. There's a, a way that they spoke. There were just things that they didn't know. And you long for the day that you could protect them so they would never have to experience how bad and evil and rotten the world really is. You see, God knew in His mind what was coming. He knew by creating man with choice. He knew what man could be capable of. But man was not even aware and couldn't even imagine what he was capable of. You know, today, as TV continues to get darker, as movies can continue to get darker, I feel like sometimes all we're doing is we're creating kind of a curriculum for how to be more evil. When I was a kid, we used to watch a show about a guy who did autopsies. His name was Quincy. He talked about autopsies, but I never had to watch them. Now I watch CSI occasionally, and my wife will not watch it with me. She doesn't want what little innocence she still has to be erased by the graphicness of what is now normal in society. Innocence is lost. Innocence was originally lost when Satan, whose history we don't completely have a picture of. Because, see, the Bible was not a history of Satan. The Bible was a history of man and his interaction with God. There are little inklings. And, and so we know that, that this serpent was Satan. He inhabited this creature. And this is what we know about that creature. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is an introduction of Satan. Satan already understood what evil was because Satan had already rebelled against God. Satan had already stood against God. 
Satan had this interesting thing. If you read about him, it says that he was an angel that was had like reflectiveness to him. And so he actually reflected, he was near the throne of God and he reflected the glory of God, but he didn't realize that the reflection was not him. And so all of a sudden he started looking at this and going, I think I might be just as good as God. Occasionally, as we reflect God's glory ourselves, we think instead of needing our God, we decide that we can act independently of our God. He was like that. How do we know it was him? Well, if you read in the end of the New Testament, it says this. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And so we know that all of a sudden, we meet the villain. The villain music starts playing, and we have the experience of the villain entering into the story. And what does the villain do? He twists the command. He creates the first fake news. He spins the story. And he says to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, have you ever noticed that whenever there are things that we're not supposed to do, especially when we were little, maybe even as we're big now, there is this sense that the thou shalt not command seems huger than it really is. Part of that exaggeration is how Satan wants to twist the truth in every life. And so the woman responds, and the woman responds and says to the serpent, we may eat of any tree of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. Now, let's take a look at what God actually said. Okay? And the Lord commanded man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. You know, sometimes we make God's commands worse than they are because we're not listening well enough to what they actually are. Do you see that in, e, in the woman here? What did she add to the command? We're not even supposed to touch it. Sometimes we're misinformed and we make God sound like he's expecting more than he really is. I think that as we are in Christianity, there are times that there are things that God tells us to do. And in light of them, we decide that everybody has to do it. Or we make it more detailed than it really was. Sometimes our response to Satan is misinformed because we haven't spent enough time here to know what the information is. Have you ever been in a situation where you were an eyewitness to something and you hear other people talk about it and you kind of go, were we at the same place? 
because the way you have embellished or changed this is different. And so you see this thing going on. That's why the interesting thing that Jesus Christ is called is he's called the truth. And it's really important to make sure we have an understanding of what the truth is. Because she was misinformed. So what does Satan do now? Satan goes on and he minimizes the consequences. Now, you won't surely die. You know, that's, that's what people do is, is they, they try to minimize that sin isn't that big a deal. It's just a white lie. I, I just was, oh, I don't know, massaging the truth. Do you, you hear these terms? I, I didn't feel like I needed to explain that part. Oh, it's not that big a deal. I, I remember having a, a, a guy come to camp and he was our speaker and one of the kids asked a question, is it wrong for me to eat grapes that I didn't buy at the store? Is that stealing? And the speaker says, oh, that's not that big a deal. And I thought, you know, it must be a big deal or you wouldn't be asking the question. God must have convicted you about that third grape you ate. But just like the serpent, there's sometimes that we think we can get away with sin. And that's what he's telling. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Just one piece of fruit. It's not that big a deal. It's just a little bit of sin. It's just a little bit of disregarding what God says. He, he doesn't mean that you'll die. That, that's not what he means. In fact, he'd go on to say something like this. It says, he, he creates men of you. You know, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He just doesn't want you to be like him. The man's trying to put you down. You know, there's a part that you're missing here. It's interesting that he says, that you will be like God. Because let's, what did he say when God created man? He said this. I, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. You know, if, if Eve would have been thinking this through, she could have said to him, well, I don't already have to be like God because he already created me in his image, so I already kind of am like God. <laughs> I've already been created to be different than anything else in creation and and I'm kind of like God. One of the most interesting assignments I've ever done is when my, my professor in theology, and we were studying the theology of God, the, the understanding, the knowledge of God, and he gave us an assignment where he took all of the different parts of God's character, and he says, I want you to, in this week, to go through, and I want you to show me every place that you see God and his character. But then he added another column, and he says, and I want you to see how as an image barrier... And as an image bearer, you sometimes emulate your maker. It was really interesting. You know, God's omnipresent. And I realized how much I enjoyed talking on the phone. Because there for a second, instead of being just stuck in one place, I could be in two places at the same time. I was kind of omnipresent. I wrote that down. You know? 
there is a sense that God is all-knowing. And, and at the time, I, I read a lot of books during that period of time, and I realized I loved learning, and I, I loved gaining in knowledge. And, and even though I wasn't all-knowing, I was knowing more. And I was being like my maker. You know, see, Satan's going to twist things. He's going to make it sound like we're missing out. Sin is never ugly to start with. It's already incredibly attractive. How many candy bars have ugly packaging? Think about it. And so she responds. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. When she bought in to some of what Satan was saying, all of a sudden, sin looked really good. You know, if you read in James, he talks about the pattern of how sin comes into our life. And he says each one is drawn away by what? When we're enticed and it looks good to us. Millions and millions of dollars are spent in this country every year on marketing. It's about making things look good to us. Have you ever watched television and thought, what does this ad have anything to do with the product? Have you ever thought that? You know, you'll have this couple and they're canoeing and they're smiling and then they're riding in their Jeep and everything. And it's a medicine commercial. Now, at the end, they talk about all these horrible things that are going to happen, but they're still in the canoe. And they're still smiling. She saw that it was good to see and that it was a delight to the eyes. And she decided that, you know what, maybe God is limiting me. Maybe there's something that I can gain by this. Maybe there's something in it for me. We don't sin unless it's in it for us. Sin is about selfishness. What's in it for me? And so what did she do? Oh, by the way, did you notice that she overlooked the consequences? We, we never sit down before we sin and go, okay, what are the pros and cons to this sin? When we're tempted, all we see are the pros. We don't see the cons. And she took the fruit and she ate it. The woman sins. And what did she do? And she gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the introduction in Scripture to collusion. People don't like to sin alone. They think it's a group project. You know, you know they, they, they want it to not just be good for them. They want it to be good for all of us, you know. And we, we flavor it in all kinds of, we spin it in all kinds of ways. But this is the introduction of collusion that we don't sin alone. Oftentimes there's other people sinning right along with us. She didn't eat up the apple and come a couple days later and say, Adam, i got to tell you, 
I tried that one tree. You know, the one we're not supposed to eat? It's great. No, he was right there. Bite, bite. Then the eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. You have to go back to 224 where we were before 225 and it says they were naked and not ashamed. This is the introduction of shame. Shame had not existed at all in the world before. If, if you've ever been touched by shame, even by a, a well-meaning grandmother, you know, we all live in the world and shame is everywhere, isn't it? This is where it was introduced. All of a sudden, they realize there are many times when our hearts are tender to the things of God that when we sin, we immediately know that we've done the wrong thing. Have you ever had that experience? Where you do it and you immediately just feel like you need to come here, kneel down and go, dear God, I am so sorry. That shame is a gift. that's supposed to nudge us back on the narrow path. But this is an introduction to shame. And then we start seeing how to deal with sin without God, okay? The first adaption is to cover ourselves, okay? All of a sudden, we live in this world as innocent, and we can be ourselves and everything, and all of a sudden, shame comes into the world, and the first thing we want to do is grab a fig leaf, and we want to cover ourselves, and we all do this. I still think of the young lady in my youth group who said, um... I don't tell anybody everything about me, although somebody knows everything about me. Uh, I always want to make sure that I manage the information. I'm not sure I want one person to know me. So some of you ask the question, how big is a fig leaf? It's, about this, it's smaller than a sheet of paper. It isn't adequate. And when we try to hide sin... It never completely works, does it? Well, we think we can get away with until we can't. God, out of love for us, always makes sure that the fig leaf doesn't work. That's what he does. But the first thing that you do is you adapt to a life in sin, and you do it by covering yourself. It's simple things like, the parent that says to his kid, if somebody calls, I'm not home. Well, why, why do you not want to be home? Well, I don't want to deal with something. And so I'd like to, you to be in charge of the fake leaf and cover for me. You know, it's the guy at work that says, hey, I know I'm late, but can you punch in for me? Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm handing you the fig leaf. I want you to cover for me. It's, uh, it's the, the alibi that doesn't work. It's the information that, hey, you, you're, you're there for me. It's, it's that we become collusion, and that leads to this adaptive life where we're trying to cover each other. This was the very first sewing project. <laughs> Remember your very first sewing projects? Probably didn't go real well, right? It, they did other things too, and it says, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the woman and, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. There's all different kinds of ways today that we're hiding ourselves, aren't there? We, 
we, we hide ourselves by saying that we don't really think that is God's law or the details have to be that way or we hide ourselves because there's 80% of you that you let everybody know but there's 20% that you're not sure you want anybody to know. You know what I'm talking about? We adapt to sin by hiding a part of ourselves because of the next thing that we see. The next thing that we see that's introduced is that God comes seeking us. The holy God always is seeking us. Uh, the neat thing about sin is that God still seeks you even though you've sinned. God didn't turn to Jesus at this point and go, well, they blew it. They're out. No. God still came seeking. And what happened? How did man respond? Man said this, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the introduction of fear. And fear is one of the main reasons that we hide. Fear is the one, main, one of the main reasons that we try to cover ourselves is because we're afraid. We don't want everybody to know. We try to put our best foot forward. We, we try to buy the outfit that makes us look like we're less afraid of who we really are. We buy the big puffy stuff for the winter so that if we get a little bigger and puffier during the winter, nobody knows, right? Sin brought something into the world that had never existed before. Man wasn't afraid of anything. Just like a little kid. We're so afraid for our little children sometimes, but they're not afraid at all. Some of you are raising some of those kids. You know what I'm talking about? So God responds. Now, I think it's interesting because when I was younger, I used to think God had real harsh tones here. Because that's kind of what authority sounded like to me all the time. But I specifically put that God was gentle in his confrontation here. I don't think he was raising his voice. I think there was a tenderness. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? I think there is a tenderness as God approaches Adam. And I think that for most of you, if you're really honest, how often is God harsh with you? Not very often. God usually tenderly comes to you in a quiet, still voice, right? And that's how he speaks to us, even in the world filled with sin. The man says, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. This is the beginning of blame. Blame is introduced. Adam is the first recorded victim. It's, it's their fault. God in his tenderness is probably just wanting Adam to admit I messed up. But a part of covering and a part of hiding is that it has to be somebody else's fault. 
in our house today, there's still the I didn't do it guy. (laughs) Hey, why is this this way? Silence. Nobody admits it. Hiding. Cover. We blame the imaginary child who does things, right? So now God turns to the woman. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And how does a woman respond? Blame. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I was deceived. Was she deceived? Yes. Why was she deceived? Because she wanted to be. She let herself be deceived. Most of us, when we're deceived, it's because in our spiritual lives, it's because we want to be deceived. There's a moment, most of us experience it, where God is trying to tenderly speak into our lives, and at some point, we just kind of go, I don't care, God, I'm going to do it anyway. And instead of seeing ourselves as the apple of his eye, him reflected in his eye, we see his back as he has to turn from us because of our sin. I think God's tone changes now, though. Because now he's going to speak to the serpent. I think there's an edge to what he says. Because of what you have done, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. These are not kind words. These are cutting words. And, and this poor animal that somehow Satan inhabited, we know is the snake that crawls on the ground. And most of you in this room do not collect snakes. Do we have snake collectors in here? Do any of you think, instead of a golden retriever, I just really want a snake? No. In fact, when you find somebody that likes snakes, your first thought usually is, oh. Right? It's interesting that one of the things that one of the commentators says is he found it interesting that one of the main things used by most cults and most um, world religions as one of their symbols is a snake. He says the snake is still trying to deceive even today. And I thought, you know, yeah, you're probably right. So there are consequences, and the consequences is every time you see a snake, they're not walking around and we're not thinking, yay, a snake! We watch them eat dust all the days of their life. He goes on and and gives a prophecy directly to Satan, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He, he's speaking a reality here. He's saying there is going to be this rivalry, and you're going to want to always destroy man. 
He will never be your friend. You will want to destroy man, and in destroying man, you are trying to destroy me. But here's the reality is, a day is coming where you're going to bruise his heel, and he may limp, but he's going to bruise your head, and you're going to be knocked out. If you read that the last couple chapters, verses chapter 20 of Revelation, you see this prophecy worked out. It says Satan was thrown into the lake of fire. He was put out. Jesus Christ was bruised, but in his bruising we are healed, right? Very different experience. So you read on. And now he talks to the woman, and he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. This is a consequence of the fall. That this beautiful thing that God created man and woman to do, which was to procreate and create family, that there would be this sense. And I've talked to some women saying, that second child, I don't know, after that one I was pretty sure I was done. The pain was so great. Pain in childbirth. Even though in our society we're trying to get rid of that, we have epidurals and all these different kinds of things, it doesn't completely get rid of the pain. Because the pain is a part of the fall. It's a part of the consequence. But it goes on and says something else. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And when you read that verse, it's kind of like, what does that verse mean? Uh, here's, here's one way that it probably is a little more detailed. Your desire shall be to conquer your husband and he shall rule harshly over you. You see, the fall took something that was beautiful and tainted it. You know? And so all there's all kinds of articles. How to, to make your man do what you need him to do. You know? How how to get the how to see your man as the project that you can finish. You know, there's articles like that out. Uh, I like what Wayne Grudem said about this. He said this. So in both cases, the curse brought a distortion to Adam's humble, considerate leadership and Eve's intelligent, willing submission to leadership, which existed before the fall. God created us in roles. And and, and if you take a look at the New Testament, it's about reestablishing those roles, right? Ephesians 6 talks about how a a wife is supposed to submit to her husband as she does to the Lord. And then it talks about the kind of leader that a man should be. He's supposed to lead his family like Christ led the church and gave himself up for it. But the fall all of a sudden took this beautiful relationship between man and woman with no drama, absolute beauty, absolute innocence, absolutely no shame, no drama or anything. And every one of us is dealing with that. And so a group like, like um, I can't think of their name, it just left me. Um, but they wrote a song recently, and we all like it, and we weep during it. And, and the song is, How Can We Be Broken Together? Right? Because that's what marriage is. Occasionally you wake up and go, what am I doing? And, and marriage is not an easy thing. It's a hard thing. Then he speaks to the man. 
And he says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife instead of my voice and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed be the ground because of you. What would it have liked being in the, to have been in the Garden of Eden where everything just kind of grew and you didn't need any miracle grow? You didn't have to worry about the aphids chewing up the branches or you didn't have any of that kind of rot. There was none of that kind of drama. Every piece of fruit looked beautiful. I was listening to these, these people on the radio and they were talking about growing apples and they said the hardest thing is what do you do with the ugly apples because people only want to buy pretty ones. Isn't that crazy? And she says, and the ugly ones taste the same. But there's ugly apples because of the curse. Everything is harder because of the curse. I I watched farmers work so hard in their land to grow things, and then all of a sudden there would be some, some form of bug or some kind of infestation, and this beautiful crop just disappears. Why is that? It's because of curse. And the reason there's curse is because God had to change work. Now, this is the interesting thing. Man had work before the fall. God changed work because of the fall. And here's what it is. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Some of us feel that pain. If you worked hard yesterday, some of you needed Advil this morning, right? Thorns and thistles shall shall bring forth for you. And, and that's always an amazing thing. I'll watch people work so hard to plant this crop, and in the middle of the crop there will be milkweed and all the things going, hi, you know. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Can you imagine what work was like when there was no sweating and no toil in it? What was that have been like? God introduces death. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and dust to dust you will return. God introduces death. Death didn't exist before this. Think about that. Nothing died before this. Everything just lived before this. This is the introduction of death. He goes on and says this. So three things happen at the end of this passage. First of all, you see hope in all three things. Woman is given a name. And she's called Eve because she's the mother of what? The living. You see that somehow, even in the midst of this, just this introduction of death, that there is hope that there's going to be life. That's the first thing that you see. The second thing you see is this. And God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the very first sacrifice. The first sacrifice an animal has never died before. But some innocent animal was what God used to provide a much better covering than fig leaves. And this is a picture in Scripture that is so strong. Think about this. This is the picture of Scripture. Because all of a sudden, what do you have? God raises up a nation. In the middle of that nation, He raises up a a way that He is worshipped. And in in the middle of that worship, is there's always a covering for sin. And what an animal must die every time that sin is covered. Until at the New Testament, 
There's a lamb that is slain that is worthy, and it's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And instead of covering sin, it washes sin away. No more need for hiding. No more need for shame. No more need for that covering. Because in Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, the last sacrifice, there is forgiveness of sin forever. Look, I don't don't know how you live or what your issues are today, but I do know that Jesus Christ wants to more than give you adaptive ways to deal with sin. Jesus Christ wants to wash sin away. He wants to take away shame. He wants to give you an innocence that you can only have because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I, I don't know where you're at in this. But the reality is, is the last sacrifice is much better than the first sacrifice. The first sacrifice just covered sin. The last sacrifice forgave all sin. The other thing is, is that God actually, in mercy, created physical death. And I'm not going to go deeply into this because our time is fleeting. He says that he wanted man to no longer be able to eat from the tree of life because he didn't want him to live forever in sin. And so out of mercy, God created physical death. That was the consequence, yes, part of the curse, part of the fall. But it also, as you read this passage, you find out it is a part of his mercy that God didn't want man to live forever in sin and shame. Isn't that cool? That's why Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ died so that He could be our Savior, so we could live forever in holiness and innocence with our God instead of being separated from our God. Do you understand the beautiful difference between that? You see, some of us, even though we are saved, we do not continue to grasp fully this idea that because of Jesus, all of our shame can be gone. We don't have to cover for it anymore. We don't have to make uh, adjustments for it anymore. We don't have to hide anymore because in Christ, we are completely forgiven. We are no longer hidden in the darkness. We have become children of the light because the last sacrifice is so much more superior than the first sacrifice. But some of us are taking a look at Christ's sacrifice and we're thinking it's just a covering for sin instead of a washing away of sin. And the two are completely different. And the reason that we struggle is because Satan, when he let man fall, realized that shame would be his greatest tool, that fear would be his greatest tool. And so even though you're forgiven, you still live in shame and you still live in fear because he daily reminds you, you you remember what you once were. You you know what you did. If people knew what you did, nobody would like you. Shame keeps some people from ever entering this door because they know, oh, I just would never, I'm not good enough to go to church. You know? Uh, There's no way, the people there, they, they have it all together and I don't. And all of us who are here are laughing, that's the funniest thing in the whole world. But shame keeps them outside that door. 
There's a fire that we want to burn in the lives of people, and shame is keeping it from being there. Fear is keeping it from being there. We need to pray for this miracle that will blow all of us away, that occasionally we're going to see people enter this door, and they're going to be here, and they're going to go, why are they here? Because God wants to take away fear, and God wants to take away shame. He wants to take away their fig leaf. He wants to cover them and wash them with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why as I studied the last couple of weeks, I knew that this was exactly the right time to do communion. Because we know that the last sacrifice, don't we? We know the work that Jesus Christ did. And so we're going to just pause for one more moment. And we're going to remember the change that God has brought to us. Because we can have our sin washed away. Now this is an open communion. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we encourage you to participate. We hold the elements and we take them together. In fact, this might be your first communion. You know why? You might decide to today that you need Jesus Christ to be your Savior and you want to take away that Him to take away that shame. If you pray to prayer after me as I say these words, these could be the words that change your life forever. They go like this, Dear Jesus, please forgive my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for washing my sin away. I'm so tired of trying to cover it and hide it. Thank you for moving it as far, as Scripture says, as the east is from the west. Thank you for dying for me. I pray these things in your Son's name, my Savior. Amen. You prayed that prayer. We want you at the table today. You are celebrating your first communion as a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask a couple people to come and pass the elements out to everyone. And as we close the service together, we'll take communion and be reminded of the final sacrifice that changed us forever.
the prophecy made to Satan on the day of the fall was fulfilled on the cross on the day Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead for us. His body was wounded so that we could be healed. No more shame, no more fear, no more collusion, no more brokenness, no more wanting to be God, but being satisfied to bear His image. This is His body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Him. There are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand, and I think one of the hardest things to understand is that Christ's death on the cross, when we accept that as our Savior, that He forgives all of our sin, including the sin of tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. And that it is washed away the moment we ask Him to be our Savior. It's not covered. It's not hidden. It's not going to show up later even though Satan was watching and recording and saying, hey, I want to remind you of what you did, we don't have to remind him of that anymore. We need to get the facts right, unlike Eve. And we need to tell him that says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the forgiveness of God that doesn't just cover you, but washes all of sin away. No more shame. No more fear. Do this in remembrance of Him. Dear God, we thank You that in reading the beginning of the story, we already know the ending of the story, and the ending of the story is that You had Your Son come as our Savior, and that we can have a changed life, and that You can restore, even as we anticipate heaven so much in our lives each day. And so God, help us to see the truth of what Your Word says is true, and to know it and to be able to quote it to Satan who desires to twist and change it. And help us not have a clear understanding of the great joy that our relationship in You is. And God, we thank You that You didn't give out on mankind at the beginning, but You worked through history to save all of mankind so that we can have a great ending. Thank You for dying on the cross for all of us. We love You. We pray this in Your name. Amen. If you made a decision to be a follower of Christ today, please let me know or someone know. We want to help you with your next steps. And for the rest of us, Let's live without fear and without shame. And let's stop the sin of conclusion, okay? Let's help each other be holy. God bless you. Have a great day.